Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, hosted by John Buckman, Ryan McDermott, and me, Elise Lonich Ryan. I'm an instructor of English at the University of Pittsburgh and a faculty fellow with the Beatrice Institute, an ecumenical learning and research community that supports advanced inquiry in the Christian intellectual and cultural traditions. Animated by intellectual friendship inside and outside the academy, Beatrice Institute serves all who pursue the beautiful, the true, and the good. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Shannon Geick. Shannon is Associate Professor of English and Director of the Medieval Studies Institute at Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Shannon is a scholar of late medieval religious culture and writing, and her first book, Image, Text, and Religious Reform in 15th Century England, examines the intersections of visual, literary, and religious artifacts and culture in order to trace a more complicated narrative of reformation in the church. Two new projects deepen and extend her interdisciplinary work. The first digs into the material culture surrounding representations of the Arma Christi, which are the instruments associated with Christ's passion. Her second project pushes ideas of the passion into the environment, attending to late medieval representations of the apocalypse and how human witness to the suffering natural world participates in Christ's passion and encourages charitable action in the present. She's written essays for the Christian century, and she's completing a book of personal essays on visiting medieval pilgrimage sites in our modern world. So we have so much to discuss, and I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you, Shannon, for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted. Great. So you and I have known each other for a while. As I said, you're a professor at Indiana University, which is where I did my graduate work. And the thing I've really always appreciated about your scholarship and your teaching is your ability to fuse serious scholarly rigor with tenderness. And when I say tenderness, I don't mean sentimentality, but real care for your subject matter. And I think you do this by being so precise in your work with manuscripts and material artifacts from the medieval period, and also with the care that you take with your language. So I want to start big and ask you, what brought you into the medieval world? How did you get started studying this field? So first of all, that's such a lovely thing of you to say. <laughs> so thank you for that. Probably like most people, I became a medievalist because of a teacher that I had. I thought I was going to study romantic literature because as a young person, I read Wordsworth and Thoreau and the American as well as the, the British romanticist, transcendentalists. And I thought they were my people, their love of the natural world in particular. But then my sophomore year in college, I wandered into a classroom based solely on the title of the class. It was called Church Ethics and Society. And it was a graduate class and the professor let me stay, which was a remarkable thing. Now, looking back on it, I don't know that I would have done that if a student would have wandered into one of my classes. But as it turned out, it was medieval literature. We read Piers Plowman which is one of the great medieval poems from the 14th century, but it is a profoundly ethical and theological poem. And at that point in my life, I was very interested in questions of poverty and homelessness. And one of the things I realized over the course of that semester is that medieval literature was equally interested in those questions on the one hand, 
but approached them from such a radically different angle that the assumptions they were making, the very questions they were asking, were just different from what was happening in our public discourse around the poor and those experiencing homelessness. And so I thought this this is worth thinking a little bit more about. But of course, it was the teacher's uh, approach to that piece of literature that really made that ethical engagement possible. So I became a student of Piers Plowman, which is strangely one of the texts I've never really written on, but have always deeply loved. That seems to happen a lot. The thing that most engages us, maybe because it's so close, is the thing that we can't quite bring in to our writing and our scholarship. Maybe, like I said, because it is so close. You mentioned that you're really interested in issues of poverty and homelessness and ethics and aesthetics. And I see that across all of your work. That's a interest that you've maintained. How do you bring those two things into conversation with one another? So one of the things I've realized recently is that one of major areas of interest is how do we get from the images and texts and art that we consume to a transformed life? And that, that basically is the question of aesthetics to ethics. So how does art lead to action in the world? And then the other side of that, of course, is how does art move us? What does art itself do to move us to action? So in some ways, when I look across the writing I've done over the last couple of years, what I've noticed, as, as you have, it seems as well, is that I'm approaching that from all sorts of different angles, thinking especially about how what we imagine, how the very act of imagining, envisioning, creating, representing is to take a first step toward ethics, toward doing. So the relationship between aesthetics and ethics, of course, is, is never necessarily an easy one or an uncomplicated one. But that's precisely the relationship that I want to mine to better understand in all of its variety and diversity. We hear so much about studying literature, studying art produces empathy that we can feel for other people. But sometimes what's missing from that conversation, I think, is that next step that you articulated, which is action. How do we move from feeling something toward doing something about our feelings? And that's the ethical component. And I think that you really highlight this in your work by questions of form and the way that literature takes on different forms. But as you said, there are formal structures to our feelings and we have a form of life. So what are some of the forms that you like to engage in most in medieval literature and art? And how do you see those making that leap to important action in the world? That's a fantastic question, but not an easy <laughs> one. So, <laughs> yeah, I do think so. My thinking on form has actually been really influenced by Giorgio Agamben's work on form of life. So he returns to the medieval monastery in his book, The Highest Poverty, to think about the way in which the monastic rule gives shape to a life. And that's a kind of ethical way of being in the world. So I'm really interested in the way in which particular literary forms reflect larger lived experiences. So one of the forms that I've been thinking a lot about lately has been the list. And we can talk maybe a little bit more about that. Sure, I'd love to. Soon. <laughs> so, but the list is a really important one, as is just repetition 
in any form. So when you think about the rule, the monastic liturgy, praying the hours, central to that is this kind of repeated entering into the Psalms, for example. And it gives shape to time. It gives shape to a life. And so when I'm reading medieval poetry, one of the things that I'm most interested in actually is often repetition. Most poetry, early poetry, at least that rhymes, has the repetition at the end of the line, the sonic repetition. But then there's also a naphora, the repetitions at the beginning that, that bring you in, that give you this sense of of ritual, actually, I think of litany, of chanting that make you feel as if you're there's a kind of refrain to it, a kind of coming home as well. So I'm interested in those types of moves in poetry, but also the larger ethical and theological significance of that. How does form contribute to theological thinking? for example. So I've written a little bit on different types of styles, so high style and low style in medieval text, and the ways in which medieval text use low style in the vernacular language, English usually in the cases that I study, to think about kenosis, to think about the incarnation, for example. So, so thinking about those types of relationships as well. So you said so much that I want to follow up on. So I'll say first that, yes, we should come back to lists and repetition, and we will. But your last point about kenosis, this emptying out and the incarnational move, I think for some people that leap from the theological understanding of incarnation and how we might travel from that understanding to literary representation might be a tough road to to walk. So how are you seeing this in sermons, in literature, in the vernacular period? What does an incarnational literature look like? So part of it, I think, is putting profound theological truths in the mouths of characters that speak in very low language. So we see this a lot, actually, in the medieval drama. So the Second Shepherd's Play, for example, which is one of the most famous of um, medieval plays. It's a story about the shepherds. It's actually an incarnational story. It's set at the nativity scene. So the shepherds are waiting and they they sing songs. They try to imitate the, the high, beautiful songs and discourse of the angels that they've heard, but they simply can't. They're incapable of doing it. But some all, all the same, their low vernacular language by the end of the play becomes this still homely still simple, but beautiful, poetic song of praise. So there's a melding there of the the high content with the low form that scholars have talked about before. Eric Auerbach um, has talked about the Sermo Humilis, um, which he says is characteristic of a kind of incarnational style. And so I think that's one of the ways in which we see it. I think the turn to the vernacular in this period as well is also incarnational. It's, it's the mother tongue. It's the language of the people when the clerics are reading and speaking and praying and preaching oftentimes in Latin, where the nobility are, are also reading Latin to speak in English, to write in English, is a profound thing. It's a very lowly thing, though, at this point. Right. And there's something so bodily about it, too. As you said, so homely in the best sense. It brings you home and back to yourself, your mother tongue, that very evocative space of home, motherhood, womb, all of those things seem to be really embodied very much 
in the vernacular. So you mentioned high and low and issues of exemplarity and issues of imitation and the things that we can't actually imitate that Christ, for example, is inimitable, yet we are called to imitate. So what are some of the ways that you think medieval sermons, let's say, or discourses on the passion negotiate this problem of exemplarity? Yeah, so this is something that I've been thinking a lot about because, of course, the call in so many of these medieval sermons is to, first of all, to meditate on the suffering and the passion of Christ. And late medieval poetry in particular is very affectively oriented, calling its readers or listeners to imagine the passion in all of its gore and gruesomeness and pain and suffering and to feel pity. But in that, of course, Christ remains an object in some ways, an object that can be identified with, an object that can be loved um, and mourned. But some of the sermons, sermons, of course, are calls to action a lot of times. And so some of them try to create meditation in that way. But others of them also call their readers to think about what it would mean to model one's life after Christ or model one's life after Christ's passion in particular. And that's that's tricky in some ways, because as sermons often indicate, what that means is suffering um, in the end. If you're going to be like Christ, you must expect to to suffer, um, to be martyred like Christ. And sermons note that this is this is uncomfortable. It's not something that that many people many people want. So the call to imitation is actually more rare than one would expect because Christ is thought to be inimitable because he's God. So so there's that tension. But of course, Christ is kind of the middle, the middle ground in some ways as well. We're back to the incarnation here. So from the early days of the church, when um, people were talking about representation, for example, they would say, you know, representation in art is legitimized by the fact of, of the incarnation, by the um, the fact that Jesus is God, but also also human. Therefore, we can represent the human. And likewise, in terms of ethics, because we can't necessarily imitate God. God is a transcendent. Um, but Christ has eminence. Um, Christ is, is human, is here. And so there are things that can be um, imitated. And so I think that they're constantly drawing, the sermons are constantly drawing us back to Christ's humanity um, when it comes to imitations, imitation, because the divinity of Christ would be something that would be a little bit trickier for them. Right. Do you think, we're talking about sermons and homilists speaking to lay people about how to order their lives, to practice, as you said earlier, a form of life that is in a way imitating Christ. Are there other genres during this period where you see people enacting Christ or enacting biblical scenes? Yeah, so this is actually a a commonplace of the late 14th and early 15th century where you have devotional treatises in particular that are basically guidebooks. They're kind of self-help, devotional self-help books to teach people how to enter into scenes of the passion. So Nicholas Love's Meditations on the Blessed Life of Christ 
is probably the best known English example. It's a translation of a Latin text, but it was extraordinarily popular during this time period. And we know of at least one person who seems to have taken up this practice and written about it. So Marjorie Kemp, who is one of my, my favorite medieval characters, and she is truly a character. Everywhere she's, she's so taken in and internalized this idea that the, the world is possibly a series of scenes of Christ and Christ's life that when she goes into a church and she sees a statue of a virgin holding a baby, she just breaks out into tears because as she writes, she says, when I see that, I see it's as if Christ and his mother are still alive to me. She tells one story in which a priest, she's crying, and a priest comes up to her and says, why are you crying, woman? And she says, because it says as Christ is, is dying today. And he says, oh, he died a long time ago. And she rebukes him for this and says, it should be this way to you as well. You should live in a world that is resonant with spiritual possibility where everything calls you back to these memories. But that's that's the type of imaginative practice, imaginative affective devotional practice that was encouraged by these various guidebooks that were circulating around. She takes it to an extreme, perhaps. But um, <laughs> yeah, I love your example. I mean, Marjorie's tears sometimes get, you know, pushed to the side as, as too much. But in a way, everything was too much at that point. And the point was that it was too much, <laughs> that if you really did live this way and see Christ's passion and death everywhere, if you saw salvation history playing itself out in every blade of grass growing, in every rising of the sun and setting of the sun, then what was there left for you to do as a human body but to weep, but to feel, <laughs> uh, but to emote in this really powerful way? And I like your language of the as if, because to me, that seems exactly what so many of your projects are getting at. That moment, that's the leap between the imaginative work and then what do we do with the work, the, the action of it. So you've written a lot about the passion, as I've said, and this meditative, affective piety. And I see your work, the interesting thing about it is that you move from that affective piety, recognizing it into these forms of life via some of the reform that was happening in the Middle Ages. And one group that you tend to think about and write about are the Lollards. Who are they? So Lollard is one of these words that scholars disagree about what it means. So I should preface this by saying that. But um, the Lollard basically just means heretic or dissident. But when I talk about Lollards, like when most late Middle English people talk about Lollards, what we mean are followers of John Wycliffe. And so John Wycliffe is probably best known now for advocating for the translation of the Bible into the vernacular so that people could read it because most lay people, again, could not read Latin. His followers also did a lot of that work. They picked up and began the translation of the New Testament in particular and began circulating that. But they also took some of his ideas and they became a little bit more extreme after Wycliffe's death. So Wycliffe raised some concerns about transubstantiation and the Eucharist, but he left the mystery there. <laughs> 
Um, for some of his followers, they just they thought it was, you know, hocus pocus. Basically, that's where the later the term comes from, that it was a way that the clerics were trying to make power and control over the lay people um, and that nothing was actually happening in the Eucharist. So so that was one area of critique. They also tended to critique a lot of the physical practices of the church. So the veneration of images, the devotion to relics, going on pilgrimages, all of these sorts of things. They wrote a lot of texts and circulated a lot of things um, arguing against these elements of the church, in part because they thought that these practices were particularly exploiting the poor. And this is one of the reasons I became first interested um, in them, because they said, why are you giving all of this money to guild statues in the church when there are poor people begging right outside? And so they wrote poetry. They wrote sermons. Um, we think that women were allowed to preach um, in some early Lollard communities. But they also remained fairly enmeshed in their local parishes, probably. So in that way, they're sometimes called proto-Protestants, but they're not really proto-Protestants. They don't really break with the church. They probably still attend mass. Beginning in the 15th century, the, the church did try to crack down on the circulation of Lollard texts and Lollard communities because they would gather in houses to read the scriptures together. And that was threatening to the church at the time for all sorts of reasons. So a number of people did go to the stakes. Books were burned um, beginning in the opening decades of the 15th century. So, yeah. Do you think that this emphasis on translation, on language again coming into the vernacular, on de-emphasizing the rituals and the gilding in churches and raising up or raising into awareness the lived bodies in poverty. Do you think that all of this is in part responsible for this shift toward a more practical and doable imitation, imitation of Christ in the world, a kind of incarnational imitation? Yeah, I think that's a that's a fantastic way to put that. I think that they certainly thought that it was, right? The church, I think, thought that, that the way that they were imitating Christ was equally relevant or important as well. And the Lollards are not the first in making this type of turn and seeing it as a mode of imitatsi. You can think back, for example, to the to Francis of Assisi and the movement that he sparked, um, driven by so many of the same things that the Lollards were. Um, but that got incorporated into the larger church instead of pushed away. And there's all sorts of complicated historical reasons, I think, for that. And I think what this shows, though, too, is that the theological motivations for social action have always been intertwined, that this history between what we might now call a social justice movement has been in Christian history in the West for quite some time. And we see it manifesting in a variety of traditions that are coming from a lot of different places and from different people. I'm really excited and interested when you said that we think that some women were allowed to preach amongst the Lollards. Do we know much about them or do we know how that might have worked? We don't have that much information about it, but there are some scholars who have, who have worked on that. And we also have a little clues to go back to Marjorie Kemp, for example. She is called a Lollard and she's preaching, basically. And, and that's one of the associations that has been drawn, that she doesn't really claim she's preaching, but She's preaching. She's a woman who did that. 
Lollards, perhaps. <laughs> Again, you have, you have to be, we just don't have as much historical evidences. Um, we have hints throughout the corpus, but that's it. Right. And sometimes that's the fun thing about scholarship. And sometimes that's the frustrating thing about scholarship. It's so evocative, but we can't always draw the lines together as neatly as we might want to. But nonetheless, even Marjorie, her speech was effective in the world. And if we're looking at these big questions of the word and then the capital W word, her word is still with us. We're still talking about her, reading her, thinking about what she had to say, even as we argue about what it might mean. And I'm interested in this too about play acting in the period and the ways in which performing roles, because we know that there were morality plays, mystery plays, which staged biblical dramas and staged the passion and death and resurrection. So were these sites of play acting and imitation understood to be on a kind of continuum with the form of life imitation that was put forward in sermons, or were they two different things? I suspect that people in the Middle Ages probably would have thought of them as two different things, though scholars have been drawing them together and thinking a lot about sacred performance, which is something that I'm very interested in. We do have evidence of sort of these mini dramas that are taking place within monastic settings, for example, where nuns will have baby doll Jesuses that they, they will cradle. So it's a kind of play acting that is also an act of affective meditation and identification where they become Mary holding the baby Jesus. But then, of course, as you know, we have these massive play cycles um, in several of the towns in England that are creation to doomsday all over a period of maybe a couple of days or maybe even a single day being performed. And one of the remarkable things about these plays is that they would give people the chance to step into biblical time. York, for example, would become Jerusalem for a day or the Holy Land for a day. And people would play Jesus and Judas and Moses and God even. This is long before the blasphemy laws. Um, so, but these were just, these were your neighbors who were playing these things. And so there was a sense that people did actually imitate in a very performative way the life of Christ and the disciples and demons as well. In these, we have one sermon, for example, that gives us a perspective on this that we don't get in the play scripts themselves. So in the sermon, it's talking about the imitation of Christ, and it says, it tells the story of someone who is playing Jesus, and after a day or so, you know, he starts to identify with Jesus. The language he uses, he says, I was buffeted, I was scorned, as if he temporarily became Jesus himself. But then later on, we're told that he asks not to play this part anymore because it was terrible. He didn't want to have to go through this and he wants something a little bit more fun, like a demon. So, um, so we don't have many examples from the Middle Ages like that, where we have this kind of reflection on the experience of acting out this role in a performative context and how that might bleed into a kind of real identification with the characters that that one is playing. But certainly that happens some. Yeah. Well, it just also those shows, even though we may not have that exact evidence, how porous 
our bodies were understood to be, that if you could hold a baby doll and think of it as the baby Jesus, or if you could be enacting Christ being buffeted and stripped and put a crown of thorns on your head, that you could somehow get to that place where you could be Mary, where you could be Jesus, where you could be a demon. And so the range of possibilities goes from, wow, I could really be doing something great to, yikes, I could really (laughs) find myself in a bad position. But both speak again to this kind of porousness and, and openness toward the world and toward these figures, these people uh, that were seen as to be worshipped divine, but also as mediators. And you mentioned the play cycle goes from creation till doomsday. So I'm hoping that this idea of performance and porousness and also the end of the world could maybe help us think about where where your research is taking you right now. Because I know that you're thinking about representations of the apocalypse in the Middle Ages. So to begin with, can you say just a bit about what those representations looked like, what people thought about the end of the world? Yeah, so I think the most common representation of the apocalypse in the Middle Ages as today was some version of John's apocalypse from the Bible. So in John's apocalypse, of course, we have these strange dragons and the beasts um, and all of these symbols that are really hard to understand. But beginning in the 12th century and really reaching their peak in the 13th century, we have these extraordinary illustrated apocalypses that um, that show that people became very interested in imagining the end of the world, but also saw it as extremely mysterious that as today, you know, there's a lot of sort of ongoing debate about what is, <laughs> does this mean anything for the modern world? Who is the beast? These sorts of things, these kinds of conversations were happening in the Middle Ages. But what I've become most interested in actually is a very different apocalyptic tradition that I'd never heard of until a couple of years ago. And I was actually in York to go back to York in a parish church when I came across this window called the Prick of Conscience window. It's it's a famous window. It has 15 panels or panes, and below each are two lines, a couplet from the 14th century poem, Prick of Conscience, which is one of the most popular poems of the, of the Middle Ages. But I couldn't figure out what I was seeing when I looked at it, because unlike most stained glass, which is peopled, there's lots of figures in it, This window was full of fiery reds and watery blues, scenes of trees uprooted. And I just thought, what what is this? So you almost had to have the text to figure out what was going on. But as it turns out, it's just one example of this extraordinarily popular, but more or less forgotten, apocalyptic motif from the Middle Ages, um, which is legendary. It has no real basis in the Bible, though parts of it can be found there. But it's called the 15 Signs of Judgment. And so most of my work over the last few years has really been focused on trying to understand what this motif is and what kind of response it would have asked of the people who encountered it. What are these 15 signs? So would you like me to read you a little bit from one of the the poems? I would love that. Okay. Yes. (laughs) So I'll 
let me just I'll give you a little bit of background just again to the popularity of this again. So there are over 500 manuscript witnesses to this and thousands of texts. It appears in sermons and drama from about the 11th century onwards. And then it more or less disappears after the Reformation. I think that's also really interesting. But I've been looking at it primarily in Middle English poetry, sermons and late medieval English art. So this is from a poem that is found in a manuscript at Oxford. And I thought I would read the first couple of lines in Middle English just so you could hear what it sounded like. And then I'll give you a translation. So the first die the say shall arise and as a wall stonde. Well, here be fifteen fate than any hill in this londa. That other die it shall so low alict that uneth men shall it say. All the fishes the thrid day above in the water shall bay. So that goes through the first three days. And then here is a translation. And I'll go through the first ten days so you can get a sense of what this motif is like. The first day the sea shall rise and stand like a wall more than 40 feet higher than any hill in this land. The second day it shall fall so low that people will not be able to see it. All the fishes on the third day shall be above the water and cry so horribly that all people will be afraid. The fourth day water shall burn as if it were coals. The fifth day every tree will bleed block drops of blood. The sixth day all the castles and houses that ever stood shall fall. The seventh day, stones will fight. The eighth, the earth will quake. The ninth day, all the hills will disintegrate and the world become level. The tenth day, human beings will run around as if they have gone mad, like wild beasts seeking holes to hide in because of fear. So that's just the first 10 days. Wow. Okay. What possibly <laughs> Yeah. But the thing that struck me when I when I first started discovering how widespread this was, was how modern it felt in so many ways. You think about we talk about rising seas and earthquakes and forest fires. So many of the things that that we see on this list are things that we see, of course, in our modern world. But what struck me even more was the form itself in some ways that unlike the John's apocalypse, which always required exegesis, which was symbolic, this seemed so fully rooted in the natural world. And none of the versions I've looked at, except for one, there's one exception, explain it in a way that tries to moralize these signs, tries to give them any meaning other than the sort of simple geological, environmental meaning they have in the, or not meaning, but just presence, existence. There are events in the natural world. And the other thing that struck me about the form, so there's the kind of physicality of it, but then there's also the sense that environmental rhetoric today takes exactly the same form. And I'm very interested in that. So if you read people who are writing about climate change, the only way that we have, it seems, to communicate the scale of something that is beyond our comprehension is to turn to smaller examples and to list them. So there is something about the list form. Once you start noticing it, you see it everywhere. It's like we cannot talk about climate change without 
saying fires in Australia and rising sea levels and melting ice caps and look at the polar bear on the piece of glacier in the North Sea. Um, it's as if one thing is not sufficient. We need to be overwhelmed with the accumulation of evidence. And we see that as early as, as this moment, I think, beginning in 11th century, where how do you communicate? How do you make people care? Maybe one thing is not enough. <laughs> you need a lot. <laughs> right. And that's the question. It's so excessive. And the more you hear it, the more you feel bludgeoned by it, the more you feel overwhelmed by it. And, you know, you, you mentioned our current or contemporary rhetoric. And I think that one conversation we're having about many issues today is how do we remain engaged and not numbed by it? And lists seem formally to sit at an interesting spot there where the enumeration of these apocalyptic events might on one hand overwhelm us to the point of action, that there's no denying it, or it might strip away our affect. And this is where I think your work is so productive because in a way that affective move, the affective piety can only go so far because if we wait to feel something, I don't think anything will get done. So how do you see with this, with the 15 signs, with the listing, are there techniques or devices that help people? Because there are no people in this. That's the other big thing. <laughs> it's mostly, as you said, trees and water and fish screaming. I, I, it's, it's horrible. So how do humans come into this? Is there room for meaningful human action? Yeah, so in the signs, as you note, one of the most striking things about them is that until the sixth or seventh day, human beings are not even mentioned in most of the examples of it or in the artwork in the window as well. So human beings are affected by the catastrophes in the later days. As you hear, they go, they go mad. They lose the ability to communicate with each other. So I think the social rupture that happens is, is really striking at the end. There's this breakdown of community. So what they do, though, that is so interesting is in so many cases, the motif is paired with the corporal works of, of mercy. And so you see the suffering world, the wounded world, and the sermons and some of the poems make that connection between the wonders and the wounds. Not exactly explicit, but strongly suggestive of, of, of the two. So the idea is that the, the world, the macrocosm, is sort of matched by the microcosm of Christ's suffering body and the suffering bodies of the poor and the marginalized in the world itself. So the motif says, look, the first thing it does is it just says witness, <laughs> see this, feel this. And then it doesn't ever tell you what to do. But then it gives you another picture of people tending to the bodies of the poor and the hungry and the homeless and those in jail and the sick and the dying, and the people without clothes, all of the corporal works of mercy, um, as if to suggest what you can do in the moment, in the moment of catastrophe, before the catastrophe comes, is to pay attention, first of all. And I think that it, it emphasizes that's the first step you have to take. You can't jump to the ethical action without having noticed that the world is wounded first. So pay attention. See the vulnerable. You're like, you have to understand that the world 
the whole cosmos as well as people are vulnerable um, and suffering. And then it gives a model of how to attend to them, look for the vulnerable and care for the, their bodily needs. It doesn't say to go out and care for the animals, the fish, the hills. It, it, it's a medieval text. It doesn't really have the kind of ecological vision, although it suggests it in so many ways. But its turn is ultimately to the human and saying that the way to care for the world's wounds is to care for the your neighbor, the suffering neighbor who is proximate to you. That's not going to make the end of the world not happen, but um, it will care for the immediate wounds that you have. So proximate care care of your neighbor. And as you say, the text does suggest so many ways in which we can move these 15 signs of the apocalypse into our contemporary ecological discourse. And as you say, the first step is paying attention, that we are not going to get anywhere unless we witness first and take that witnessing seriously. And the thing that fascinates me is, as you said, so many of these apocalyptic discourses offer no moralizing and no exegesis. So tell me if you think this is appropriate, but in some ways, witnessing involves a suspension, maybe a suspension in time, but also a suspension in meaning. So that meanings that you're not anticipating can come to you and you have room to move with more creative action. Does that seem fair? I think that's wonderful. I wish I would have said that. That's so, that's so well put. It's, um, no, I, I think that's exactly right. So it, when you witness something, if you're truly just being attentive to it, you're not necessarily already imposing your, fr- I mean, we can't help but impose in some ways our interpretive framework on something. But this motif asks us to resist that, I think, or asks its readers to resist that. Because if you're really attending, then you can be taught and then yeah, moved into that sort of space of creative action and knowing. The idea that humans should read the book of nature is a very old trope, a very old directive. But if we're reading the book of nature, what are we learning from it? Are we learning to expect the end? What does that end look like? What What are we learning when we read this book? That's also a great question. So this is something I've been thinking a lot about because when people talk about the medieval book of nature, they often think of bestiaries and this kind of symbolic interpretation of the world or herbals. There's all sorts of sort of symbolic ways of reading the natural world. But if you go back to some of the earliest texts that are talking about reading the book of nature, like Alan of Lille's book of creation, for example, the thing that the book of nature teaches is how to die. It teaches that human life is fragile, that we're vulnerable, that we are like the grass, as medieval poets often point out, we're a frail thing, which is ultimately a point that should make us humble, right? So it's when we think about reading the book of nature now, scholars often assume that's asserting a kind of interpretive framework again on nature. But what the medieval texts are suggesting is that it's a reminder of our mortality. And so in the Middle Ages, thinking about death, um, learning how to die is, of course, really just encouraging us to think about what it means to live, to live well. When we realize our fragility, our mortality, we're more likely to think of life and the world itself and everything around us is very precious. So the book of nature, actually, that's one of the things it teaches. I'm sure it teaches many other things as well. That seems to be the most profound lesson 
though, because it is a lesson that will come to all of us and that if we're there to witness it, is available to us in a variety of different ways, perhaps, but is uh, non-discriminatory, <laughs> is death, of course. And I really see a beautiful arc here to your own thinking that what drew you into that first medieval class was a concern for the most vulnerable, for the homeless, for the poor, for what it might mean to hold a certain set of beliefs and act rightly in the world. And your scholarship continues to think through those things. That's a really lovely commitment that you've been true to. I think one of the worst things that sometimes happens when you study pre-modern literature is there is a knee-jerk assumption that, well, that happened then, but this is now. And you know, for those of us who are in those periods, that gets our blood boiling. But how do you see these conversations about imitation, form of life, witnessing time. I mean, we're really talking about time here, embodied time and eternal time. How can we use these to make sense of our moment here in the summer of 2020? Well, I've been thinking a lot about collective flourishing and how so many of these texts ultimately are about the flourishing of the whole and how hard it is for us to think collectively and how that so quickly gets dismissed under all sorts of terms that don't necessarily have to do with it, like socialism, for example. So I do think that the models that the Middle Ages offer as they struggle to figure things out themselves and as poets and writers and theologians work out these issues of what does it mean to live well and die well in all of these different ways using different forms is ultimately what does it mean for us all to to flourish in this brief time that that we have. And so I think that reading medieval literature, thinking about it in this particular moment, can remind us that the collective is very important. And because we're not so good at thinking that way, we have to step back and, and watch and listen and learn. I think especially in this particular moment that, that we are in, I think a lot of white people in particular are having a moment in which they realize, in which we realize that I have not listened well enough. I need to listen and learn and watch. But the question that remains open is the question that we've been talking about is how do you move from listening, from imagining to an actual model of a collective flourishing in the future to action to how do you imagine that sort of world and will just reading and seeing be enough? So the questions are the same in some ways. So what what is that middle step that we take? And as I think we've talked about today, medieval texts think about it in some different ways. There's not a single way. I think feeling is part of it, but it's not enough. Um, there is that sense that action needs to be driven by imagination and conviction, but listening, attending needs to come first. So I think that speaks to our moment very directly, but um, very directly. Yeah. And I can't really think of a better last word to end on that imagination and action and that sense that we need to find a way to imagine ourselves forward into form, into structures that can create collective flourishing. I love that. I'm going to use that myself now thinking about what might matter for all of us going forward. Shannon, this has been a really rich conversation. I've learned so much, and I appreciate the work that you do, and I'm grateful that you were here today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was just a joy. 
Thank you for listening to my conversation with Professor Geik. As you likely realized from our new opening, Beatrice Institute's podcast now has three hosts, as our executive director, John Buckman, and I join Ryan McDermott in the good work he has begun. Some of you who have been following our podcast may remember me from an earlier episode, The Art That Comes From Plague, and I'm genuinely excited and grateful to take on this new role as podcast co-host. I've studied and written on English Renaissance poetry, especially women's poetry, and I consider my teaching to be my vocation and the fullest expression of my scholarship. I'm currently writing a series of poems and essays that combine research with creative nonfiction to think about those moments when despair and joy collide to produce something like astonishment. We hope you'll join us on this new stage of our journey. If you would, download our episodes, like us on Facebook, and share content on social media. And for the latest updates, sign up for our mailing list at beatriceinstitute.org. Again, thank you for listening. We're working very hard to bring you enlightening, inspiring, joyful, relevant, and curious conversations. Until we speak again, may all good and peace be yours. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.